take up your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. This will be our New Testament reading for this afternoon. And then after that, we will turn to Psalm 131. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, to the that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. And turn with me to Psalm 131. And as you are turning there, it is important to realize that Psalm 131 is part of what Scripture labels the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms are from Psalm 120 to 134. And what they show is a progression, a progression from darkness into the very presence of God. They are a picture of the pilgrim's walk, a pilgrim's journey brought to worship God, brought out of the wilderness and into the worship of God. They were most likely sung by Israelites on their journey to the yearly feasts, and most likely when they were coming out of exile back to Jerusalem. But with that, let us turn then to the holy words of Scripture. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Let him bless it to us. That famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by Horatio G. Spafford after great and considerable loss. November 1873, shortly after the great Chicago fire and the death of his four-year-old son to scarlet fever, Horatio decided he needed a break. The family needed a break from that great loss. So he decided to take his wife and four daughters to Europe for a vacation. However, when an urgent matter detained him in New York, he was a real estate agent, 
He sent his family on ahead on a luxurious French liner. During the small hours of the night, on November 22, 1873, as their ship glided over the water, the passengers were jolted suddenly out of their beds. They rushed on deck and found that the ship had just collided with an iron sailing vessel. Water poured in like Niagara Falls, and it took less than two hours for the ship to sink to the ocean's depths. Among the 226 fatalities, Horatio's daughters, Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie, were listed. Mrs. Spafford herself was found nearly unconscious, clinging to a piece of wreckage. And when the 47 survivors landed in Cardiff, Wales, she immediately telegraphed her husband. And she said, saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately booked passage to join his wife in Wales. And on route, the captain called him up one night and said, I believe we are passing over the place where your, sh- your children's ship went down. Horatio went to his cabin that night, but could not find sleep. And in the darkness of his cabin, he said these words, It is well, the will of God be done. Soon after he wrote the hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Mr. Spafford humbled himself to God's will. We see this also then today in the attitude of the psalmist. We do not know when David wrote Psalm 131, but we know that David's reign in Israel was not without grief, loss, and bloodshed. His reign, you could say, was was counted far more in times of war than in times of peace. Yet he hoped and he trusted in the Lord. David wrote this psalm by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it depicts a humble rest in God's divine sovereignty. And so I want to look with you this evening in three, at three points. First, a humble approach, verse 1. And second, an assurance in God, verse 2. And finally, a grounded hope in the Lord, our concluding verse. Let us begin with a humble approach. David begins this prayer by saying, Lord... In the very first words of David's prayer, he acknowledges God's headship and authority. He is appealing to God who knows all things. To trust the sovereignty of God, we must humble ourselves before him. And so the psalmist shows himself humble before God in three ways. In the heart, in the eyes, and in the mind. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Let us begin with the heart. David presents his heart to God. He presents his heart to God here, and it is in reference to the will of man. It's speaking of his emotions, his intentions. And so when he says that his heart is not haughty, he is saying, neither am I proud in my opinion about myself, contemptuous of others, nor self-righteous before the Lord, neither boastful of the past, proud of the present, or ambitious for the future. Even with David's great accomplishments in the, on the battlefield, his great kingdom, his fame, his wealth, his popularity, his heart is in subjection, in subjection to God. Now, this does not mean that, that David did not struggle with pride. He was a man just like you and I, and you can be assured that the temptation to be proud was there. And he fell into pride a number of times. One example is in 1 Samuel. David's kingdom has never been going better. It's just wonderful. And he said, oh, I think I will count my army to see how powerful I am. Well, Scripture says when he counted his army and he, the number was returned to him, the Bible says his heart struck him. But then it says he repented. His heart is not puffed up. The Holy Spirit taught him obedience and taught him humility. And this brings him to the throne of God with a soft heart. Trials are often used by God to soften our hearts so that God can work on our hearts. But David also humbles his eyes before God. As with the heart, the eyes are dealing with the inner man. David's ambitions and his desires, his aims, are also humble before the Lord. C.S. Lewis once wrote, What the heart desires, the eyes often look for. Where the desires run, the glances usually follow. An arrogant eye is one of the seven things the Lord detests. Proverbs 6.16 And David's eyes could have been fixed on many things that would be natural to the fallen and natural man in this world. And some, once there, it was in the sin of, with Bathsheba. His eyes were not looking towards the battlefield where he was supposed to be, but his eyes were looking to where they ended up in lust. But here in prayer, the psalmist's eyes are fixed not on what he can achieve or obtain, but on his heavenly Father. Jesus himself gives us an example of how we, how we are to pray like this. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, I will read it for you. It's a very well-known passage of Scripture. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, 
standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. David knows who he is before God, a sinner. But thirdly, David not only humbles his heart and his eyes, but also his mind. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David does not try to know the secret things of God or the reason behind what has happened or what will happen. He does not occupy himself with figuring out the future. It's very easy to want control. And if we don't feel that we have control, often we can panic. But David is, is not is praying that he, that would not happen. He's not filling his mind with unrealistic projects, but learns to live with unanswerable questions. He is content in God's plan for him. David does not mean that he does not occupy himself with great works of God, or, or does not meditate upon the goodness of God, the, the wonderful attributes of God, we can, we, it is wonderful to be able to meditate and get lost in the, in the power of our, of our Lord. No, that's not what David is saying. He is merely saying that he has not sought to find what God has not shown to him. That he is not going to be anxious about what he does not know, and he's not going to be proud about what he does know. One of Charles Spurgeon's students was going into the ministry. And in that day, the pulpits were rather higher than, the, than this. And you had to walk up stairs to get to the top. Well, on this particular Sunday, this student minister went up with every expression of confidence. He had this. But while he was there, and throughout the service, he had a very difficult time. And, and someone recorded as this, he came down distressed, almost brokenhearted. So he went to Spurgeon, and what happened? I, I went over my notes, I wrote out my prayers, and the words to Spurgeon to him were these. If you had gone up as you came down, you would have come down as you went up. We can sometimes approach life in the same way. Full of confidence. We got this. Not a problem. But what do we have to be proud in. Are you super confident in your accomplishments? Are you in your money, your things, your car, 
your farms, your businesses, or, or your knowledge, or even how we approach our holy God? Do we approach Him in our own strength or in humble reliance upon Him? Maybe some of us here today approach life and God with, with the total opposite of that. And, and we are absolutely filled with despair, filled with worry, and approach God with, with absolutely no hope. The answer to both is the same. As David approached God, so must we. In, the very, in, in fact, the very aspect of approaching God requires humility. Having a relationship with our Lord requires knowing our place before Him. It is about our plans and life goals having their purpose in God's holy will. It is ascending out from our self-dependence and placing everything before the throne of our loving Heavenly Father. In humbling himself, David is ascribing God his worth. And doesn't this first verse direct us then to the greater David? If there was any human being on earth who ever had reason to boast about himself, it was Jesus Christ. The only one who could have pure confidence. He was perfect. He performed wondrous acts and saved his children by the most precious act of self-sacrifice. And yet, this is what the Bible, this is what he says about himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, rest, for your souls. Christ calls all of his children to learn from him, to rest in him. And this does not come by pride, but by humble trust. We read Philippians 2. Just think about Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ, the very Son of the living God, humbly bowed before the Father, praying in agony. Luke twenty two forty four says, so earnestly that his sweat was like great drops of blood. Why? Why? So that Scripture could be fulfilled and redemption would come for our sakes. We must come before God in humility if we ever want to grow in Him. We need Christ in order to humble ourselves. Imitating the life of Christ calls for meekness. This brings us then to the next verse in the second point. A calm assurance. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Many or probably all of us know what anxiety feels like. 
You know what it's like to be up at night in your bed, tossing and turning, our minds full of fear and worry about what will happen or maybe what has happened. In those moments, it is very difficult to calm ourselves. No matter how long you count sheep, it doesn't work. You're just up all night. Charles Spurgeon, again, he he took this particular psalm to heart. He struggled greatly with depression. Sometimes his wife would ever, would would wonder if he would ever come back to the pulpit because he was so laid down with depression and sadness. And this is what he says about this verse. It is no easy thing to quiet yourself. Sooner may a man calm the sea or rule the wind or tame a tiger than quiet himself. And yet David says he has calmed and quieted his soul. How did he do it? How did Spurgeon cope with depression? They humbled themselves. They comforted, they found their comfort in Christ. Pride often leads to anxiety, but humility is often the first stage on the way to peace. It is. Before you can ever know of your need of salvation, you have to realize how bad you are. When we humble ourselves during trials, during anything that is going on in our life, We are submitting to God's divine sovereignty. He is in control. And this helps us cope. This helps us rest in loving, in his steadfast faithfulness. David uses the illustration of a weaned child with its mother to express this assurance he has in God. Going through this passage in this particular time of my, of my life, my, my son Malachi was 10 months old, and he was not yet weaned. It was actually quite funny to see him. Ellie would walk into the room, and Malachi was either on the floor or in the playpen. And when Ellie walked in the room, we called it his motorcycle, he'd start immediately rolling his fists, and you could a complete look of anxiety in his eyes, rolling his feet too. We, it was hilarious. And then if Ellie walked out of the room, then he would start crying. I often wondered what went on in that silly little boy's brain. I was sure he was thinking, I wonder if, if, if mom remembered to feed me again. A child that is not weaned will cry as soon as it wants its mother's milk. And it will not be quiet until it drinks from its mother. Often during the weaning process, the child flies into tantrums and sulks because of what has been denied him. All you mothers know exactly what I'm talking about. But the weaned child, the weaned child has gone beyond the stage of seeing his mother as a source of supply and has entered into a stage of contentment, simply to be where she is. So the weaned child in our text loves God for who God is. Happy simply to be in God's presence. 
this can be a picture, this, the, the weaned child and the unweaned child is a picture of what it's like to be sanctified. As we walk with God, often in our immaturity, we often get angry or anxious when something does not go the way that we planned it to go. And then what do we do? Instead of, of coming to the Lord in, in hum, um, humble prayer, we, we take counsel from ourselves. We, we try to figure out to solve problems by ourselves. And we can often become anxious and nervous, wondering if God knows that we're here because we have forgotten to take counsel from him and we try to do it by ourselves. And we pray then too, as if he's kept his love from us. We cry to God as if he's forgotten about us. Sometimes in our nation today, It's easy to even wonder where God is. It can be easy to doubt our God. So instead of anxiously praying, or sorry, instead of we sometimes anxiously pray for what God can do for us, what God can provide for us, what needs he can meet for us, for me, let us pray that we would be content, content to just be with God, to know his presence. The Bible says, he whose mind is stayed upon the Lord has perfect peace. The child of God knows he's safe. Now, I do not mean that we should not depend upon God as our source of strength our source of refuge, safety, and even the source of all our needs. The psalmist often talks about how God is our strong refuge. He is our help in times of trouble. Now, scripture often talks about God this way, and that, and no, and God is the refuge, and that is the very reason we should not be anxious. We should not cry out in unbelief and doubt on God's good and glorious provision, but simply trust Him calmly, waiting for Him to work, knowing that without a doubt, He will work. As we grow in our love for God, we can see more and more Christ's love to us, but simply trust and all we need to do is simply trust in him and calmly wait for him to do the work. This is childlike faith, dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty. But finally, verse 3, we come to a grounded hope. In verse 3, David changes his prayer from personal to corporate. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He wants the whole church, the church of Israel, to embrace what he embraced in the first two verses, which is humility before the Lord, assurance in the Lord, all because his hope is in the Lord. As David calls the, uh, all Israel to be humble before him, so Christ calls us to be humble before him. Christ calls up, us, us to hope in him. He calls us to repent from our unbelief and to trust 
in him no matter what the circumstances. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. But here is a call to hope in a world so full of hopelessness. The world is in turmoil. Millions of homeless Ukrainian refugees are swarming and pouring into neighboring countries. We have all thought, most of us probably have thought, what if this is the beginning of World War III? Maybe you have lost a loved one. Maybe you are about to lose a loved one. In the past two years, we have seen so much depression and suicide. The statistics are still the same. 300 babies die every single day. And then we can look to our economic status. Inflation continues to rise. Some people doubt if they'll ever get to work this week because gas is too expensive. And it's times like these where people can ask, what should we do? Well, I want to return this question with a question. Before we do anything, let our hope inform our actions. And the question is this, in whom or in what are you putting your hope? Politicians, investments, medical experts, the military, nuclear power, David urges the church of Israel to turn to the only place of lasting refuge, hope in the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we should not make preparations. It is very good, and it is a duty of us to be good stewards of what we've been given. It is good to invest. It is good to have a, a military. It is good to have medical experts. But we should not be putting our ultimate hope in them. As Christians, it is very disturbing to see what our government is doing. And yet, we do not have to lose hope. Every, because every nation to God is like a drop in a bucket. Now, what is hope? What is this hope the world today uses the word hope as an uncertain desire for something positive. We've all heard someone say, oh boy, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. In this case, we really do want it to rain tomorrow. But or in, in 2020, that first year of COVID, at the end of the year, when I was at work, I often had people say, oh boy, I hope 2021 will be better. It wasn't. not to their expectations. But friends, this is not how the Bible uses the word hope. David never ever said in any of the Psalms, oh boy, hope that Messiah will come soon. He never said that. He simply said, hope in the Lord. It was a verity, a surety. He was completely 100% confident in the Lord God Almighty. 
There is no doubt about this hope. This is faith. Okay, hope in the Lord. But to what end? What end do we hope in the Lord? Well, the end, brothers and sisters, is salvation. Brought to you by Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have your Bibles still, look at the psalm right above. Psalm 130. In the last two verses of Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. The hope is for abundant redemption. The hope is for mercy. The hope is from being delivered for being delivered from all our sins. Israel's hope was not found in its army, not found in its mighty men of valor. It's Israel's hope was not even found in their king, but in God, who took them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and brought them and brought them to his promised land to be in his presence. And whose son would come to save the world from sin. Christ is the cause of this hope. He humbled himself so that our hope could become a reality. Our hope is in Christ who had once and for all paid the debt of sin that would have sent every single one of us to the lake of fire. What is more important, brothers and sisters, than the state of this world, the state of our nation, is the state of our very own souls. This world will pass away and we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and have to make an account to the Lord. And so David calls his people to hope in Jesus for their redemption and salvation from sin. Why? Because sin is the greatest world crisis. And the greatest hope in the world, is Christ. Let us say, O church, O church, hope in the Lord, because Christ has saved you from sin. Believe in him, he's coming again. And when he comes, he will make all things new. What a hope. I think of that hymn by W.F. Lloyd. My times are in your hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in your hand, Jesus the crucified. Those hands my cruel sins had pierced are now my guard and my guide. My times are in your hands, such faith you give to me, that after death, at your right hand, I shall forever be. What a promise. So until that day, you and I are here in a broken and hurting world with real issues. How do we deal with them? We come before the Lord humbly 
not trying to figure everything out, but trusting, asking the Lord Jesus Christ for a fear of the Lord, to trust Him, to trust in God's good work and timing, knowing that He knows all our needs and trusting that He keeps His promises. Well, as David is in this state of mind, the Spirit moves him to pray for everyone. In these dark days, we need to urge everyone on then. We need to turn around to our brothers and our sisters in the church and in our workplaces and in our families. We do not know sometimes what they could be going through. We need one another. Look to your neighbor. You never know what they might be going through. Help your brother and your sister rest in God's divine sovereignty. In closing this this afternoon, where is your hope today? Do you want this calm and steady assurance and faith in Christ like David? It was nothing that David ever did to get it except praying to the Lord of grace for it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Place every concern and care at the feet of Jesus Christ and believe and wait for him to show you his love as you go and through life. Place your heart, eyes, and mind transfixed upon the cross, not on the world, for that will only discourage us. Jesus did it all. All to him we owe. Let us pray.